0: Corky Siegel at his home. He was kind enough to allow me to enter his home today. <laughs> First of all, Corky, how did you get the name Corky? Because I know that's yeah. not your given name.
1: Yeah. When I was born, my sister named me based on a Skeezix comic strip. It was called Gasoline Alley. It was called Skeezix. And there was a baby in their character called Corky. And so she, you know, always read the Sunday Funnies, and Corky was a main character. And when I was born, she named me Corky when I was born. Oh, and that's stuck. Yeah, it's a nickname, but it's right. it stuck. Um, it's not an official name, is
0: it, at this point in your life?
1: Uh, it's not a legal name. Uh, Mark is my legal name, and it creates a lot of confusion because everything is in Corky, but every once in a while I have to have the legal, and then they need documentation to back up the legal, and I don't have it because everything says Corky. <laughs> in situations where people want to be tough on me, right they can because no. of my name so so
0: I, I one thing I wasn't clear on is: were you born in Chicago mm-hmm. okay so yeah. you've lived your whole life in
1: Chicago well mostly I mean for so far you know right. for 73 years but I there was the point when Siegel Schwal went on the road where we didn't have any home we were just <laughs> on the road And San Francisco became more of a home than other places because we were there for three months out of the year, maybe a couple times during the year, or where other places would be a week or two. Okay. I'd like to ask you
0: about San Francisco in those days, but before we do, tell me about growing up in Chicago, what that was like
1: and how it influenced you. Well, the way it relates to where I am now, when I was growing up in Chicago, is that I always had been told by my parents and others that America is this, you know, great place where we treat everyone equally. Mm-hmm. And I saw that wasn't true. And it was an uncomfortable feeling. Now, I could tell you, I didn't know that back then.
0: And this is I, all in retrospect. Can I ask you, in, in what way did you see that? Like, what was an example that you thought,
1: this isn't correct? Well, well general racism. Mm-hmm and general, from my perspective, a lack of justice and a lack, lack of fairness and a lot of cruelty. Mm-hmm. And I saw that. Now, I, I wasn't so conscious of it, okay? But in retrospect, it was part of the drive that allowed me to cross the tracks.
0: And I know musically you did that, but is it in uh, in the other way that you... uh... Yeah, uh, the
1: neighborhoods. Right, okay. I I ended up going to, you know, all the the black clubs. That's where I hung out. That's where I felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, again, I felt like this was the good side. I was on the good side. I felt comfortable. I was very, very welcomed, and I felt comfortable. Again, I didn't know it then, but why did I do this? I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. you know... At some point, and that, and and that's one of the main reasons. Blues just so happened to be the vehicle. Right. I think a lot of people definitely have had that same same experience. It was the one good thing I did in my life back then. Was cross the tracks. I was selfish, you know. But
0: I wonder if did you cross the tracks because of the blues? Like, did did that draw you into the other side, or Mm -hmm. did you go there and then discover the blues?
1: Well. The, on the surface, one would think it was because of the blues. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain, sure it had a lot to do with it because it's what, what a beautiful culture. But it wasn't, you know, to me, it, it didn't make enough sense that it was just because of that. And when I realized it was political, I thought maybe it was entirely political and that's why I was attracted to the blues.
0: Interesting. Can I ask you about that connection with the blues and mm-hmm. how you were drawn to it? And, and as a young white boy, I guess, yeah. young man, Yeah. what was the connection?
1: I think there's a couple things that happen. One is, in general, all the music I was listening to in the 40s and 50s had some relationship to the blues. It was <laughs> country music. You know, Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, sounds like blues. You know, mm-hmm. um, Elvis Presley. You know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the the jazzing of, of of music, and
0: it was it all
1: either was directly related to the blues, came right from the blues, or was influenced by the blues. Even Gershwin, mm-hmm. you know, was influenced by the blues form. So when you hear finally the blues. It, like, really feels like home. Because this is where it all came from.
0: I don't know if you can answer this. Was there a moment? Yeah. Can you explain that moment to me?
1: Yeah, the moment was, you know, I already, you know, really enjoyed the music a lot, and I used to to listen to a lot of it. My sister had brought home all these uh, records from a a Tasty Freeze that my uncle owned. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were all these blues records or race records as, right. they, as they call them. And I really liked them and I used to listen to them. But when a neighbor brought over the Howlin' Wolf album, he heard me playing, I was trying to learn harmonica, more of a Bob Dylan style. Mm-hmm. And this was probably in 1960, let's say 63, 64, I, I would guess, or at least early 64. Uh, he heard the harmonica coming from my house. I didn't know this guy. But he came over with three albums. He came over with the Holland Wolf album, Muddy Waters album, and the Jimmy Reed album. Wow. And I put those albums on and played them over and over and over and was dancing ecstatically throughout the house, my parents' house on the south side of Chicago.
0: How old would you have been? 20,
1: 19. Um, Fell in love, you know fell head over heels in love with these artists and, the, and this music. So, at,
0: sorry, two yeah, two, but it's at okay. this point, you're living in Chicago. Do you know that this is
1: no. based out of Chicago or no? No, I never even read the back of the album covers. Oh, okay. You know, I was just totally into the music and not so much the history. Actually, not the history at all. I had no interest in the history. It was the music that I was interested in. And the connection between dancing around the house, which is a performance, mm-hmm. and sitting down at the piano and trying to play the shuffle rhythm was a direct connection. You know, I wanted to get that, that feeling and, and get the music too and you get that whole experience and feel the expression. And I don't have the skill sets that most musicians have, especially in terms of the, the learning process and, and the musical memory and the, you know the physical thing and being able to just relate uh, a musical idea and get it to come out physically.. I did. So really simplifying the notation, of what I was playing and really trying to find out how to get the expression out of it is where I started and where I've continued. So to me it's always been for the purpose of the feeling of expression. And the blues artists were the epitome of uninhibited expression. Mm -hmm. However, that's also true in all other forms of music, But, but blues artists are pretty much on the pedestal of it's not just about the music. In classical music and maybe in jazz, you want the personality to get out of the way of the music. You want the music to speak. But in blues, the personality is part of the music. You want the personality to make its statement. It's part of the whole experience and the whole expression. Now, Not that doesn't happen in, in other forms of music. But the school of thinking in classical is that you want, you want the player to get out of the way, which I think is not really smart.
0: <laughs> so, but I wonder, so you're 20 years old, you hear the, the, these three blues albums, you're playing the harmonica like Bob Dylan or trying to imitate Bob Dylan. Yeah. How long does it take for you to not master but to comfortably play blues as if you're here listening to a Muddy Waters or Howlin' Wolf album? Say the last part of your question. uh, How long? Yeah, So now you're introduced to blues all of a sudden. You you obviously decide that you want to imitate those harmonica players. Mm -hmm. How long does it take for you to
1: competently play those songs on your harmonica? Uh, I learned almost immediately that this is something I couldn't do. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. I would have loved to be Howlin' Wolf or at least sound like him, right. or at least sing like him, or play the harmonica like these people on his record, who I didn't know who they were because I didn't read the back of the album covers. But it wasn't gonna happen. It wasn't going to happen, and I knew that right away. So I didn't like say, well, I'm gonna try and develop my own style or anything. What happened was I still wanted to play the music, <laughs> and I wasn't trying to really imitate anything because, I again, I, I, I tried. Mm-hmm. For a couple seconds, <laughs> it wasn't gonna work. So I allowed myself just to be steeped in that music and to be totally influenced by it. And then wherever it took me, it took me. And the one thing, in terms of the immediacy of when did it happen, it was playing the shuffle rhythm, the shuffle rhythm on the piano. doo doom, doo doom, doo doom, doo doom, doo doom, doo and I got it. I got the feeling and I was getting goosebumps and I played that for months without even making chord changes so much, but just the same thing over and over, driving my parents and everyone in the house crazy. But I was, it did it, it did it for me. That was it. And then from there, it was just a matter of adding a few notes, making a whole phrase, Creating a twelve-bar phrase and then have singing some lyrics over it, and that's been my whole life. From this, from that moment, is I need to maintain those goosebumps. I want them for myself. I want to maintain the expression. And if I go too far, I start losing it. So I just make sure I progress. You know where I could be able to really have the. Uh, the playing under enough control so that I could maintain the, the depth of expression for myself.
0: So I consider you a harmonica player.
1: Um, you do play the piano. Do
0: you consider yourself more of a piano player than a harmonica player?
1: Well, I'm more sort of known as a harmonica player, right? But when I do solo shows, it's mostly piano. Okay. And so I did a lot of piano on John Prine's, you know, Bruised Orange record. Right. I'm. I'm I can't. It's unbelievable. The same thing applies. I, I I play differently than other people out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Well, which you makes know, it unique. It says it pretty simple. But, and that's a, a great, good fortune for me. <laughs> so
0: for the moment that you got those three albums from your neighbor yeah. to the moment that you started playing in a blues band, how long did that take? A few months. That's it. Okay, so you decided at that moment you want to pursue this, and then you start. You, you got together. Yeah.
1: Because I think it was 65, I got interested in the blues. I met some guy at a music store, a really tall, beautiful black man who played blues. And it was like having a real blues player as a friend. And he taught me stuff and he was this amazing guy and he didn't want me to come to his home in the projects, because he was afraid for my life, because he said he's afraid for his life, right. and I said, "Milton, Milton Boyland," I said, "I want to come and visit your family," and I went, and I visited his family. he was, you know, some good things I've done in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, then, um, you know, I started writing songs. I have no idea why. You know why I didn't just. Do the songs that, and and I learned, you know, "Down in the Bottom" by Holland Wolf, but I was so anxious to, so enthusiastic would be the word, to already get there and play the tune. That I didn't want to spend too much time learning it. <laughs> or learning that, so I would learn a couple verses, I would go to the piano, and from what I remembered, I heard, I would play, and I'd always get it wrong. So as Holland Wolf pointed Holland Wolf pointed out to me you know, years later, uh, you're playing that lick backwards. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, so at what point do you realize I'm living in Chicago, there are all these greats around me?
1: Yeah. Oh, when did I realize yeah. that? Yeah. Well, this is when I realized it. When I met Jim Schwal at Roosevelt University, he was in the jazz band. I was playing saxophone in the jazz band.
0: And it's like, at that point, when you're going to university for music... Were you thinking that there's a career in music that this is what you're going to pursue? No.
1: No, never.
0: Oh. Never. (laughs) It was just a hobby that you wanted. I
1: never thought of anything. I never thought what's going to happen in two days. I just sort of was hanging out. I was a very bad student. I failed everything all the time. I never really graduated high school. I went for five years. And it's even wrong to say that I went because I mostly (laughs) didn't show up. And I, went, I got into college. My parents actually got me into Roosevelt University, Chicago Musical College, where I failed every single course except the performance courses. I failed all my music literature courses, all my you know, technical music theory courses. Um, I never passed an English course in my life. And I'm making up for lost time on that <laughs> one, I will tell you. <laughs> I don't recommend anyone, but it was just painful for me to do homework and, and say so there it was just not. The, so I fa- I was a bad student, but um, I went to school, and I can't remember the basis of your question.
0: What, what Why you went to school for music and if there was a goal? Oh, no, no, a...
1: there, no, there wasn't a goal. The goal was to stay out of the army, the draft. Okay. You know? and, uh, and music, I couldn't get into art school. I was turned down there. And so music, you know. Because those are things I was interested in. I was interested in nothing else.
0: So you no meet Jim Schwal at the school.
1: Yeah, and I, I learned that he played blues. You know, he played country blues guitar. And I went over to his house and completely musically bonded immediately. And he was just learning to play finger picking. you know, he played some style of blues, but mostly it was country bluegrass kind of a thing. He came over to the house and we put a, a repertoire together based on some things that I wrote and some Howland Wolf and Muddy Waters and Jimmy Reed things, just so we could play and then just as a natural thing we wanted to play for people. I think it's a natural thing that artists mm-hmm. want to show their works, you right. know, whatever. <laughs> so it was a natural thing, so we, that's when we went into the black bars on the south side of Chicago, and just would walk in and say, could we set up and play for you? You know, in the afternoon, right? And we'd walk in, set up on the floor of the tavern and we'd play and, you know, so we do and stuff like that. And we worked our way north and this was all within, you know, the, this was in 60, this was 65 already. You know, I, I got, got those albums in 64, so mm-hmm. this is 65. And we walk into this place and, you know, we say we'd like to play for you. And he said, um, we, we know you have concerts, you know, you have music at night. And could we, uh, you know, uh, you know, we'd like to play. And he says, well, why don't you set up right here and play for the women who are, you know, should, are, you know, will be coming in here soon. And we'll see how it goes. So at, at the time I had a Wurlitzer piano with a, a bass drum under my right foot and a hi-hat under my left foot. And so I'd be playing the piano uh, with both hands and then I'd pick up a stick and, you know, add to the hi-hat and then I'd put the stick down and pick up a harmonica and play a little bit of the <laughs> harmonica and and then play, you know. So it was like a one-man band with, with Jim Schwall, right. the guitar player. And uh, we got the gig. He said, I want to hire you, but I don't want you to play the drums or the piano. Now, all I knew was we're in this bar where they have music, and the guy just hired us to play every Thursday night from nine at night till four in the morning, every Thursday. And he didn't want us to use uh, the the drums under the piano, so he hired said he's going to hire us a bass player and a drummer, and we just show up a little early and we rehearse and, and play. And the first people that show up, and I don't know that they are, I found out later, it's like Muddy's bass player and drummer, whoever that was, or right. Holland Wolf, or whoever wasn't playing that night, he would hire those that rhythm section. So every week we had a different rhythm section with with famous players wow. that I didn't realize. <laughs> I just thought they were some guys that he hired. So then, you know, so the first night we played there, uh, according to my recollection, Holland Wolf shows up to sit in with us. Okay, now do you know who Holland Oh I guess you would know because he had the front yeah. of the album cover. And I'm going, wow, that's Holland Wolf. I, I mean, I didn't know he lived in Chicago. I, I didn't think of it one way or another. But there he is. And then there's Muddy Waters. And then there's Otis Spann. And then uh, Willie Dixon. And they're all coming and sitting in with us and taking care of us. And, you know, like it was unbelievable. And, and can, you,
0: can you explain that when you say taking care of you? Yeah. What does that mean?
1: Well... Talking to us, talking about music, mentoring, mm-hmm. mentoring okay. is the best word, and just welcoming us and, and expressing so much love, and obviously liking the idea that we were honoring them so much, um, and you know one thing that I that I think of now is when all all the kids in my group tell their story about going and being with Howell and Wolf. Mm-hmm. They're going in there and asking to sit in with Holland Wolf. And Holland Wolf lets them sit in, which is an amazing thing. And that's their experience. But Jim and I had an entirely different experience. We get this gig. we I have no idea what's going on. And these people are coming and sitting in with us. And then one guy comes up and says, Hey, Gorky, I'd like to sit in with you. And then I went, It seems like you've been... You you know, he seemed like he was drinking a lot. So I says, well, why don't you come back another time? And the audience went, hey, that's Little Walter. And I didn't know who Little Walter is, and I'm thinking, who's Little Walter? (laughs) This is how naive this was. This is so weird. And so I went, okay, come out and sit in. And then he sits and I go, oh, my God, that's Little Walter. (laughs) You know, totally blown away. And oh, my God, so... So you really
0: didn't, like, you didn't go after them. They came to you, basically.
1: I'm a, yes, and I almost, it's, what a gift. Mm -hmm. You know, as I say, I was an innocent victim of incredible good fortune. And then, there I am, you know, playing these dates at, at Pepper's Show Lounge. And then we moved to the north side of Chicago. We are playing Mother Blues on the north side in Old Town. And Howlin, Wolf, and Howlin' Wolf comes to see us there, to watch us perform and sit in with us. And he loved Siegel Schwall. And he told us, he said, you know, all the other guys, they're great. You know, they're great, but you guys are different, and I really love that. And Muddy used to tell me the same thing. All our contemporaries told us that we sucked. Hmm and they were doing it wrong. But Holland Wolf and Muddy Waters were saying, we like the fact that you're doing something different. And like I say, for me, I was doing something different because I was just looking for something I could do. Mm -hmm. I was not like trying to be different. (laughs) Can I
0: ask you, what would have been the things that you would have been taught or you learned from playing with Muddy or Holland? Because I mean, you're learning from the masters, or you're playing with the masters and the
1: people who define the genre. Tell
0: me what was the thing that you took away from that experience.
1: Well, it's true with a lot of the blues masters, but let me just talk about Howlin' Wolf. Mm -hmm. He threw himself, without any inhibitions, into the expression, into performing the music with such intensity and dedication. Dedication is not even a good word. It, it, it's to surface. Mm-hmm. He, he showed me joy. He showed me that this is joy, that this is joyful, that there's great joy in playing music. And it's your job to put joy into the music, not to wait for the music to offer you joy. It's your job to keep that going. Wow. Muddy Waters and all these guys. Otis span It's about joy. And then, you know, I, I don't know, maybe it was B.B. King, because you interviewed B.B. King. Maybe it was B.B. King that says, you know, if blues was sad, why is everyone dancing? Mm-hmm. So, you know, certainly it came out of that history. But the purpose of it is to uplift. The joy is the purpose and we know when people are being treated so inhumanely and yet have to live in this world, the music brings them great joy and is very uplifting.
0: I wonder if at any point during those early years that as a white musician y- you would have questioned your position in the blues. Yeah. Is that a fair question?
1: Yeah, I was interviewed by Ebony magazine, and they asked me all those questions. And basically, my first answer was, "When you're head over heels in love, there's no explanation. That that is uh, enlightening. Mm-hmm. It's just you're head over heels in love, right? You know." And uh so I also say there's many different when you use the term blues, there's many different ways to define it. One way to define it, which would make me totally not a blues musician, would be the history. Mm-hmm. That it's music and it's the history and they're part of each other and they are. Right. And I'm not a blues guy. Mm-hmm. Another definition is um, just the musical form, you know, where there's the, the third note of the scale and the seventh note of the scale are treated differently than you would expect, which is why it's so brilliant. And the, the structure of the, of the s- tunes have a particular form to them. And then Gershwin's a blues musician. mm mm-hmm. You know, so it's and there's all in between, right? Yeah, so so it just depends on how you, how you define right. it. So a few years later,
0: you're playing, and Seiji Ozawa shows up to the bar. Yep. And I, I, my understanding is he shows up a number of times and shows interest in working with you.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, at this point, what are you thinking that there's this great classical conductor? And he wants to work with you with the symphony. Yeah. What's your What's your first reaction to that
1: proposal? Boy, I was so naive. You know, here's little Walter coming up. And, you know what I mean? It, it yeah. was like I didn't really. You know, I'm I'm a I i am was very young for my age. I hadn't matured. I was totally selfish. And had. A difficult time understanding that other people existed you know uh, you know it was all right and, uh so i i i didn't get even wolf and muddy and all the i loved them and i loved what they did but i didn't get that extra little superficial hit of how famous they were and how important they were hmm. i didn't i didn't really live in that place
0: but that might have been a good thing.
1: Yeah, it, might, it certainly, yeah. I, I, I. Actually, just so you know, to clarify that, I have incredible respect for fame. I think when someone is famous, I'm impressed. Mm-hmm. I don't care if they're good or not. It's not relevant. The fact that they've been struck by lightning. <laughs> they've been struck by lightning. Right. And I, I have to honor that. It's a phenomenon. Right, It must be honored. That's mm-hmm. how I feel. So, no, you're right. You're right about that. So Seiji comes in and he says, I'd like your band to jam with my band. And I'm going, who's your band? You know. And he goes, well, the Chicago Symphony, Seiji Ozawa. And I never heard of him. And of course, I heard of the Chicago Symphony. And the, the answer wasn't about him being a famous conductor. Or it being the Chicago Symphony, the answer was because he said he wanted to do something with me musically that would be different.
0: Yes. So when you, you went know? to Roosevelt University, was it classical or jazz music that you were following? It, it was classical,
1: but we had a jazz program.
0: Okay, so classical wasn't totally unknown to you.
1: That you had correct. some experience in it, okay. But pretty unknown. <laughs> Okay, so the question. And so is well, Go ahead. <laughs>
0: so I know it's easy to romanticize blues, and I often do this. But you know, I, I think of blues at its at its core is a small bar somewhere in in Chicago with people like Water Waters playing to the audience. It's not. It's 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 very loose, and it's very in the moment. Working with an orchestra to me seems like such a different thing to, to, to present blues or form a blues mm-hmm. with a 70-piece orchestra or whatever. Tell me about that experience and that
1: adjustment. Well, the real difference was the size of the orchestra. That's what really made it, makes the difference. Mm-hmm. The other things are, as far as I'm concerned, misconceptions, you know, about the difference between classical and blues. Right. Um, there are differences. Beautiful differences, beautiful contrasts. You know, again, you know, with the third and the seventh, in the performance style, in the way things are approached, and there, there's, there's real differences that are, are beautifully compatible. As a matter of fact, it makes music, to me, more. Well, let me just deal with this, this part of this first. There was a program called. Sita Ram, which is here at a big theater in Chicago. And it was a combination of Indian raga and R&B. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing experience. And I went to meet the composer, and the composer told me he had turned it down many times because R&B and, and, and you know, no. You know, that, right. It's crazy, you know, and it would be very difficult. And, da, da, da. and he said he took on the project. He said it was the easiest thing he's ever done and the most fulfilling and the most fun. Hmm. And the reason that's the case is because artists and composers, composers, they're always looking for something fresh. They want to write something and they want it to be fresh. They want to offer something different to the world. Right. But if you bring two different genres together, it's going to be fresh. It's easy. Right. Just do it. <laughs> So, so the the elements that are different in blues and classical are very, very complementary. The things that seem to be opposing forces, as I call them, it's complete illusion. What people... So the way, I, the way I put it, and I've answered this question this way a number of times, when we think of blues, we think of T-shirts and jeans and mm-hmm. those kind of hats and right. beat-up guitar and a smoke-filled bar. When we think of classical, we think of evening gowns and tuxedos and an ornate concert hall with a piano and high stick. But the music doesn't know about that stuff, that stuff we made up. Mm -hmm. and superimposed upon these forms of music. I mean, it it may come from art. You know, well, they do wear T-shirts and this and this, but it has nothing to do with the music, and and that's what we carry, and that's what... And then we talk about blues, and we say it's hip. classical person may say it's, um, what's the word, Uh, prehistoric? uh, Primitive. Primitive, thank you. It's primitive, and we say it's hip, and we look at classical, and we go, it's square, and they say it's sophisticated, and we believe those things, and they have nothing to do with the music.
0: (laughs) But I wonder, I mean, I've had the pleasure of working with classical musicians as well as blues musicians. One thing I know about most classical musicians is that they have a discipline, which is to execute the musical notes the way it was written or interpreted a certain way but it's based on a score that they read and notation mm-hmm. that they play. In blues most of it is improvisation and it's about the feel and it's about the moment so when you were playing with the orchestra I, were, you, were you actually reading notes or were you actually just playing by feel?
1: We knew, we had an idea what we were going to play Right. in each section. Here you're doing a shuffle and you're soloing here you you know that kind of a thing, and there was a couple places where there's some notes, you know, something like that. But it was mostly just created with um, you know as a. It was created in such a way that we were able to do what we do. Along with the orchestra and have the orchestra really be part of it, right? As opposed to them just backing us up, because that was a key. Why bother doing this if it's just going to be an orchestra backing up a blues band, right? Let's have it be a real collaboration between the two genres. But you know, in terms of blues being improvisational, or even jazz being improvisational and classical not being improvisational, when you understand what improvisation is, the only thing that's different is that the, that you're not It's not as improvisational as one might think. Mm -hmm. And what you're improvising, of course, are the pitches, melodies, and the rhythms. And in classical music, you're not improvising the the melodies or the rhythms are already written. But what you are improvising is everything else. You're improvising how you approach every pitch, mm-hmm. every single pitch. You're improvising how you approach it. You're improvising how you vary the rhythm to create more energy. Now, you know, in, in any music, it's it's a variation that creates extra energy. So that feeling you want to get up and dance is coming from a rhythmic dissonance that's created. So instead of do 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 all of a sudden you hear do 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 pat do pat do do Whoa, you know, so it's a variation of every element, the pitch, the rhythm, the articulation, uh, the tonal quality, the rhythm, and the dynamics. There's tons of stuff to improvise for a classic mm-hmm. musician. And just very naturally old classical musicians that have been playing their whole life are varying all the elements to create this extra energy as as an expression right so uh, when you look at that it's sort of a a cool thing to have the the melody and rhythm written down (laughs) because you could focus on all these other very expressive things right Uh, so I I don't see you know you know and also improvisation is more like having a bag of tricks in terms of the melody and the rhythm. Yet you already know the licks and the in the in the pieces of, you know, little phrasing, little mini phrases, and the larger phrase, and you know, and you have the experience of putting them in different places. But it's not like it's completely coming out of the air. Putting the pieces together may happen more by chance. You know, so you, you get some. I, yeah, yeah. I don't no, see I, him as all that like mind-boggling, right? Different. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> which, which makes sense. No, it does make sense in the way yeah. you put it. It's,
0: it certainly makes more sense. When you first presented these works right. by William Russo, yeah, how were they uh, received by the audience? Yeah.
1: Well, the very first one, it was, it was a great success. So, um, they. All, I mean, every t- every time we play those pieces and I still play them um, and I play my own pieces it, it's, it's always um, the desired response from an audience which is you want a physical outrageous standing ovation that's spontaneous and not out of tradition but out of a surprise Right. you know so <laughs> it's really easy with this music because it has the physicality to it, and it's filled with surprise. So you know, uh, but my favorite story about the response to the music <laughs> is nineteen sixty nine, New York Philharmonic. Have you heard that story? No. About okay, so it wasn't with Siegel Schwal, because Siegel Schwal was, was off for a little while. And I just had gotten some musicians from Chicago. Uh, They were just kids. Mm -hmm. And we had four performances with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, At some point, the fifth was added because it was really, you know. So we showed up and we were invited on stage and we walked on stage and our amplifiers were there and they had guitars and... Uh, one guy wore a vest without a shirt, blue jeans. Everyone in Philharmonic Hall was in sequence gowns and, you know, minks and right. tuxedos. Everyone on the stage looked like penguins. And we walked on stage. 1969, the newspaper reported that the generation gap, and that was what we were dealing with back then, was wider than the Grand Canyon. And people started booing and hissing, like with incredible anger and bitterness and hatred. How did that make you feel? Well, this is a new experience.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because you haven't, this wasn't the response you got before.
1: And Seiji turns to me and goes, what should we do? I mean, he knew what to do. Musicians know what to do, but... You know, being the mentor, you know, he was, what should we do? And then he asked me. I said, let's play and have a good time. He went, okay. So we started playing. Peace ended. Immediate standing ovation. The, the president of the Symphony Association approaches me and, and a group of people afterwards. And says that was the longest and most intense standing ovation he has ever heard in Lincoln Center. said the only thing he could remember that is reminiscent is one of Caruso's last performances. (laughs) Wow. Here I am 20, in my 20s, you know, early 20s. And I have this, I get to see the power of music. Like all of a sudden, you know, there's all this anger and bitterness and boop, it's gone. Hmm. And everyone is experiencing something they're enjoying together. And it's like, never happened
0: so I know you talked about not having future plans but at this point are you thinking that you will be touring the rest of your life with major symphonies or were you going to go back to the four piece band or how, how, how did you view Yeah. Uh, well
1: Siegel Schwall we had our final concert in March uh, it wasn't announced it wasn't planned it just sort of happened. Even Jim Schwall didn't realize it was all at <laughs> concert. He went, "What? What's going on?" I he said, didn't get what? the memo. Yeah. So but um, the, 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 the band is very important to me. It's, and Jim Schwall is you know, I mean, we went through all this stuff, and we got along really well. The band, the band and Jim and I, and you know, he, he drank. That was his thing Mm -hmm. and i didn't and that was my thing and there was always stuff going on there but it was all civilized and you know but you know and you know i would have liked to continue but health reasons and it just made it too difficult it was too difficult for me and um and i was feeling we should quit while we're ahead give the audience the best that we could give them, and when we're not sure we can do that anymore, for various reasons, you know, I thought. But I love these guys, and and Jim is my my brother, and
0: you know. It's strange when you think about you just met at school, many many years ago, and there was some sort of a musical connection, and then many 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 years later you were still playing, mm-hmm. and there's still some sort of a musical
1: connection. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like it was... We were right there, first day, you know.
0: You continued with incorporating
1: classical music with yeah what you call your chamber blues. Yes, yeah, since 68 was the first performance. 66 right. was when Seiji came in and we started talking about it. But now you, you're working with more of a string quartet yeah. plus a
0: percussionist. Tell me about that transition, because now... What you said before, it's not really blues being played by an orchestra. And this is, I right. don't know if this is blues played by a, not a string quartet, but a mm-hmm. string quintet or whatever, or yeah. if it's classical music played with a blues musician. Right. <laughs> How do you define it?
1: Yeah, well, it's, well, it's the way I define it is, is that it's the compositional interweaving of blues and classical flavors. So the, the foundation of it is that it's compositional and the compositions juxtapose blues and classical in different ways. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot more going on. There's a whole crossover thing that's going on which is the performance styles and the instrumentation creates a social, political juxtaposition. Right. But it's deeper than that, it's really the compositions. But the compositions cover a spectrum. Sometimes the string quartet is a blues band, in my mind. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're purely classical, and if I'm performing that piece, sometimes I write some of the more classical pieces without me. But if I'm performing another piece, I'm trying to find out how can I get the blues harmonicas to work with this and actually be complementary
0: as a as a musician and and we'll say as a harmonica player in this oh, case, but it, sorry
1: ideally, I always like trying to hit in the center. that's always really exciting right
0: but how how different is your approach to harmonica playing or piano playing when you're playing in with your blues chamber musicians
1: yeah if I'm playing with a symphony and I'm playing with a string quartet the the dif- I don't do anything different
0: but is the approach to harmonica the same? Are you playing more like a blues musician or are you playing more like a classical musician? No, I'm
1: playing like a blues musician. Okay. But in the blues, my blues playing is not so much like a blues musician. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Only, you know, uh, little by little I'm learning more of the traditional sound. Not licks so much as sound. I'm doing, I never really did the tongue blocking thing which is when you hear traditional blues players—that's what they're doing—and mm-hmm. it has this deep, and I love that. But I never did that. And then someone started uh, Joe Felisco, this harmonica player in Chicago, started teaching me, you know, how to do it. And I've been applying it little by little to my music because it creates even a nicer contrast. As a matter of fact, on the last album, there's a couple places. There's one place where the whole piece is built around a little more of that. Little Walterish kind of a sound against a totally Mozartian counterpoint
0: okay, so you're composing some classical music piece or some pieces that are influenced by classical music exactly. How does that happen from a kid who yeah. skipped all the classes, probably the composition class as well right how did you learn or how are you learning to do that
1: yeah that's well, not by listening to classical music <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Uh, but by listening to my recollection of what classical music is.
0: And could I ask who would be some of the composers
1: that you might be referencing? I, well, I don't know a lot of their names. <laughs> okay. I know Mozart. Right. Da, 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 da. You know, I just, I know the flavor when you talk, talk about Mozart. I know what he sounds like. Okay? And... I'm not sure what any other composer sounds like, but I have heard all of them. Right. And I know that there's this... Okay, so there's that. There's that, that I know what Mozart sounds like. And I think of myself as a blues musician writing classical music, not a classical musician writing mm-hmm. classical music. So it's all from a blues perspective. And it's all about what what gives me the feeling of expression in the compositions, you know, in the intellectual compositions, what you know seems to have expression. And the way I write is I'll start with a measure or just a little concept. I I can't I don't know the whole piece. I can't even know the whole pieces that I've already written. <laughs> you know, I have this new album coming out and I have no idea what I wrote. I don't have a memory for that stuff.
0: So, so now this everything is charted.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I write it, and then the you know we're rehearsing. The musician says, "Well, was that supposed to be a E flat or an, or an E natural?" And I go, "I don't know. Let's <laughs> play it a few times, and we'll pick the one we like." You know? <laughs>
0: so the musicians you're working with in the, in your chamber blues group—that's yeah. the proper name for it—do yeah. they have the ability to improvise?
1: Uh, one of them can improvise a little bit. And one of the pieces in Chamber Blues is built for a couple of the players to improvise by having them read music in a particular way that is really improvisation, but they just don't know it. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll have a phrase, I won't have any bar lines, and I'll say, okay, we're going to play this, and now what do I want you to play over that Play this phrase, repeat it, add a trill, add a glissando, repeat part of the phrase over and over, go back, and then move on to the next phrase when you're ready, and then treat each phrase that way. So, you know, they're improvising. It's just that there's notes on the page, (laughs) so they don't feel like they're not. (laughs) I know it's
0: unfair to put things in boxes, but we often
1: do. Who
0: are your audiences? Are they blues fans? Are they classical music fans? Are they both? Mm -hmm. What would be...
1: Well, fortunately, Chamber Blues has been successful in having audiences in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them are from the Siegel Schwal days, so there's a lot of blues people there. And there's a lot of curious people which the music industry never really paid a whole lot of attention to. Mm-hmm. And uh, market research doesn't allow for curiosity. It only deals with what people know. And therefore, you do the market research, you ask the questions, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower because there are, people are only working within what is there, not what isn't there. Right. So I'm offering what isn't there. <laughs> so the audience is, I, I had one guy say to me, raise his hand, in a in a pre-concert discussion. We were there on stage getting ready to perform. He said, I really love chamber blues, but I'm a classical purist. How do you explain that? And I said, Well, number one, you're not a classical purist by definition. However, there's no such thing as a classical purist, if you're talking about music. Classical purism is a political phenomenon. You can't, I mean, either something's doing it for you or it isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you don't have to make predecisions about what you like. That's like ridiculous. You like what you like. You know, so I mean the idea of being a purist is insanity. And it's not insanity, it's a social or political thing, but it it it's not about the music. Right. If it's about the music, they'd go. I mean, it, it just makes no that never made any sense to me. The, you know, well I just like jazz, you know. And if you actually go to people and ask them, you go they're at a country music concert, right? They're all country music fans. Well, maybe, maybe not, but most of them are probably country music fans. And then you go and you say to this country music fan, what kind of music do you like? And you may be surprised that they don't just like country music. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, well, I like all kinds of music. Or I like, oh, I love classical. I love Sam Lay, the blues drummer, the icon of blues, you know, one of the main guys, his favorite music is country music. Mm-hmm. He could never play blues again and he'd be happy and he would just play country music. I hear a lot of blues people say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, there's, it's just, you know, having a group like Chamber Blues, as I say, is like driving on a car 100 miles an hour through the uh, on the hood ornament through the walls of musical traditionalism. Is that it's t- it showed me very, very quickly how we have so many misconceptions about the arts in general, it's wild. That's my that's my um, perspective.
0: I, I wonder the young man who who had no plans, who never had, knew what he was doing two days before yeah. him. Yeah. When did you become a
1: man with a plan? Well, you know, I mean, the plan was t- to arrange a piece of music so that I could play it. Mm-hmm. You know, like a, a blues song. Or, you know, I mean, there were many plans. But we, Jim and I never, together, we never had an, a, a, a career plan. And in fact, at one time, Jim said to me, Corky, we're supposed to be doing this for the fun of it. I said, Yeah. He says, Well, you know, this party that we're considering doing in L.A. at the Troubadour, is that going to be fun? And I said, No. (laughs) And he says, Then why are we doing it? I said, You got a good point. (laughs) So we drove the industry wild, I'll tell you. (laughs) But we were very happy all the time. We were very happy. We are doing what we wanted. All the time. So, no. And, and today I go, plan? I'm 73. Just take a day at a time. I don't have a career. What's a career? You You have a career when you're 26. You know? <laughs> but you've
0: had an amazing career. My final question to you right. is when you look back at the age of 73 to that young kid who, who got those three albums, I mean, how do you look back on your life in music?
1: Well, I say I did one good thing. I crossed the tracks for the right reasons. And wow, those guys are really, they really were very natural Mm -hmm. musicians, a lot of energy. You listen to the first record. I mean, it's not anything I would do now, but it was like, wow, it it was like they were playing music. That was pretty amazing. You know, there were later records that, you know, but the first one we did, the The joke is that, that it took us less time to record the record than it takes people to listen to it <laughs> because of the spaces they added in between right. the songs. <laughs> so it was one take. Yeah, it was all a continuous take except for one song that we did twice. That never ended up on the record anyway, but yeah, it was all just one you know, let's run the tape, we're going to play, we'll, we'll just stop for a second and continue with the next song. We, we just wanted to keep the energy going. And that was it. Now it's I do it totally opposite.
0: I'm sure. Well, it was a real honor meeting. Thank you so much Great. for this. Great to Thank see you.
1: you. Thanks for making